It was October 25th, 2003, Game 6 of the World Series. My New York Yankees were in a precarious situation. The World Series was nearing its end. The Yanks had only won two games, but the Florida Marlins, they were up with three wins. They only needed one more to clinch it. The Marlins had carried themselves to the World Series a few years earlier in 1997, a win sandwiched by Yankees winning in 1996 and 1998. Now, the Marlins were back, prepared to win their second World Series. Despite an all-star Yankees featuring Hideki Matsui, Derek Jeter, and my favorite Jorge Posada, the team could not pull it off. Miguel Cabrera's Florida Marlins powered themselves to their second and most recent World Series win. Since then, the Marlins have never made it back to the World Series despite auspicious beginnings of the franchise. When they were first formed in 1993 as the Florida Marlins, the first Major League Baseball team in Florida, they would go on to win two World Series in their first decade of existence. Since then, in the ensuing 20 years, they've never even come close. But that was the Florida Marlins. In 2012, they made a decision to no longer represent the state at large, but rather the city in which they were based. They became the Miami Marlins, a familiar name to that region for those acclimated to baseball's unique history in Florida. The Major League Baseball Miami Marlins were not the first to be called that name. They also weren't the second. They were actually the fourth team to be called the Miami Marlins. The first team to bear that name had a bold beginning and a legend on their roster. You need to understand, minor league baseball has always had a history in the state of Florida and there have always been teams in Miami. For example, before World War II, there was the Florida East Coast League, one of my favorite leagues in Florida's history. We're going to have to dive deep into their brief stint in our state. They had a team called the Orlando Nationals. Thank you very much. Uh, if we had an Orlando team, I would be a very happy man. And there are people who are trying to make that happen. Keep your eyes out. Maybe we'll talk about that in the future. But the war cut that league short, the Florida East Coast League. All the men who were wearing pinstripes, they would need to put on fatigues and enter the war effort. America's pastime was put on hold. But when the war was over, as the 40s ended and the 50s began, a new league in our state popped up. The short-lived and oft-forgotten Florida International League. There were six cities in that league, and one is going to surprise you. There was, quote, Miami, Miami Beach, West Palm Beach, Tampa, and Lakeland, and Havana, end quote. That is right. Across the Straits of Florida, the city of Havana competed in the Florida International League. Just made sense. Quote, with over one million people, its population was bigger than the other five cities combined, end quote. This led to intense rivalries between the various Cuban populations, both in Florida and, of course, in Havana. It brought people together, and as the league got rolling, the rivalries did too. Cuba was the dominant team before, quote, the Cubans won the 1946 regular season championship with a 76-41 record, end quote. But the playoffs went poorly for the Havana team as West Palm Beach knocked them out. Tampa took the 1946 season, and now the league was truly rolling. It would last for six more years, bringing the game back to the state of Florida, decades before our first major league team came to our shores. It didn't last, and, and it never really would. The teams and the leagues, they would 
come and go. But Miami clearly was a hotbed of, of, of sports. It clearly was a place where people were interested in baseball. Its proximity to Cuba brought Cuban players over or, or, or fans from all over. Miami was the spot to have a team. So when we finally got a major league team, it only made sense that it began in Miami. But there were many, many minor leagues in Miami first. One of my favorite of the minor league teams was actually called the Flamingos. I actually have a Miami Flamingos hat, but the Miami Marlins, that would be the essential brand of Miami baseball very soon. You see, in the 1950s, there was a team called the Syracuse Chiefs playing out of Syracuse, New York. They were the AAA affiliate for the historic New York Mets. Sure, New York is a baseball state, maybe the baseball state, home of my Yankees, but the Syracuse attendance it was pitiful. Miami, however, was fervent. The people wanted to attend the games. After the Flamingos, before the war, and the rivalry-fueled games of the Florida International League, it was clear that the residents of Miami were hungry for more baseball. So the Syracuse Chiefs rebranded and relocated. They were now the Miami Marlins, and fans rushed to the now-demolished Miami Stadium. The Miami Stadium, which hosted the Brooklyn Dodgers for their spring training games. In fact, it was at the Miami Stadium that the Brooklyn Dodgers first showed off their new team name, the Los Angeles Dodgers. The first location that the Los Angeles Dodgers played any sort of game, well, it was at the Miami Stadium for their spring training game back in 1958. But when the Dodgers were back at their park for the regular season, the Miami Marlins took the Miami Stadium as their home field from 1956 to 1960. It was a brief stint that hemorrhaged attendance as the years went on, a now nearly entirely forgotten chapter in Miami's long history with baseball. That is except for one player's appearance in these games and one particular game that he played in August of 1956. That game drew, quote, the largest crowd in minor league history, end quote. It was such a big crowd that they didn't even play it in the Miami Stadium, actually. They played it at the Orange Bowl. That is how big this game was, at a football stadium. And, and that wasn't played at the Orange Bowl because of the dominance of the team or, or even their competitive rise, which they did have in 1956. Rather, it was because of the legend taking the mound for them, a man named Leroy Robert Page probably never heard that name before, but you probably know him by another name. Everybody just called him Satchel, Satchel Page, one of the greatest pitchers in baseball history. At the age of 50, Satchel Page pitched in front of 57,000 fans and won the game for Miami. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. I hope you can hear that I am grinning from ear to ear. I am so excited to tell you this story. This week, we are talking about one of the most fascinating figures in baseball history, a legend of the game, the great Satchel Page. We've talked about so many of the historic figures in baseball, Babe Ruth, Jackie Robinson, Hank Aaron, Ty Cobb, but now we're going to dig into a man that I've always been fascinated by. And let me tell you, researching this man for this episode has made me just even more of a fan than I already was. You are going to leave this episode in love with this guy because I know that I am. And we get to talk about a section of baseball history that I've always wanted to talk about. And, and frankly, I wish there was more of a connection to it because of, of Florida history, but th there's very limited, but we'll talk about it more in the future. But that is not just Satchel Page, but also his rise through the historic Negro Leagues. 
He was a stellar performer who pitched a sellout game in Miami, and we're gonna talk about all of that. So let's step up to the plate and face off against the great Satchel Paige. The long path that brought Satchel to Florida began in Mobile, Alabama, when he made his first appearance for his hometown team, the Mobile Tigers. He was a pitcher from the very beginning, which should come as no surprise if you've seen a picture of Satchel. He was very tall, though I keep seeing different sources. Some say he was 6'2", some say he was 6'7". I saw one that said he was 6'4". All you need to know is the man was tall, and he had these big, massive arms and huge hands. Every picture of the guy with a baseball in his hand looks like he could throw it clean through a brick wall, and he probably could. He was just that powerful. His long limbs proved beneficial in his career before baseball, when he actually worked at a train station. He would carry the bags, or the satchels, you see where I'm going, on his arms, or even on a long pole that he loaded up with bags, as many as he could at a time, until one day, a porter at the station said that he looked like a satchel tree, like a tree whose fruit was only the satchels that he was lugging around. The name stuck. Just like Buffalo Bill from earlier this season, the name he was born with was left behind. Leroy, no more. Satchel, forever. Satchel was the name he carried into professional baseball. In the year he turned 20, 1926, Satchel played for the Chattanooga Black Lookouts, the first of 11 teams that he would play in over the nearly 20 years that he was one of, if not the premier pitcher of the Negro Leagues. We have talked about the Negro Leagues before on this show when we talked about Jackie Robinson four years ago. Jackie broke the Major League Baseball color barrier when he was the first black baseball player to take the field for the Dodgers in April of 1947. You'll remember, however, that he broke the minor league color barrier first in Daytona, Florida. I'll, I'll put a link to that episode. It's a fascinating story of how Jackie did it, both in Florida and then again for the Dodgers. But the Negro Leagues ran for decades in the United States, a segregated league where black players could play the game that was so beloved across this country. It took a long time for the official league to come together, but a man named Rube Foster pioneered it into existence. By 1920, he had devised a plan to make it so that the owners of the teams and the players themselves could host their own game and the owners could make money without relying on the white teams. They, they said something about there being white gates, the gates that, that the white teams and white players would go to and white audiences would go to, but the black owners wanted to have their own economy with the sport and this league allowed them to do that. They could have their own fields, their own audiences, and they wouldn't be dependent on playing in the same fields or stadiums that the white teams did. They wouldn't have to share a cut of the profits with the white teams. They could make their own money on the game with this league. Quote, Foster spent years convincing his fellow black club owners that organization was necessary, but on February 13, 1920, those owners came together at the Paseo YMCA in Kansas City to form the Negro National League. End quote. It was a success the eight founding teams garnered loads of, of fans and attendance, and for 30-odd years, the league brought legends to the field and entertained adoring crowds across the country. There were even rival leagues with rival teams because clearly the idea was, was just so obvious, and it worked. It took off like a shot. The league would have its ups and downs, but it survived until it didn't need to anymore when Jackie Robinson finally brought the leagues together. 
And before we get back into Satchel, I want to tell you something. For a long time, the statistics that were used in the Negro Leagues, all of the amazing batting averages and earned run averages, all of the successful numbers that these guys put up in these leagues, they weren't considered sort of official MLB stats. They were kind of put in their own separate bucket. They were segregated even now. But in the last few years, Major League Baseball has amended this issue and they have now put the Negro League statistics and the players for those leagues into the same rosters and books and set of numbers and, and record keeping as the MLB players that go back centuries. It is such an obvious thing that should have been done a long time ago. I mean, these leagues ended 80 years ago, but now they are together and the numbers are properly reflecting how good these teams were that were being segregated at this time and honoring them as the important part of baseball history that they were. Please go read more about this. The Negro League integration of statistics in the last couple years has been hugely beneficial for our historic understanding of Major League Baseball and how it has transformed over the last century and change. It is a hugely important thing that has happened here, and, and I'm really glad that baseball has amended this problem that should have been solved a long time ago. Anyway, back to Satchel. Satchel made the rounds throughout the league, playing for, as I said, 11 teams in the minor and major leagues of this segregated era of baseball. Sometimes he played for the NNL. Other times he played for the Eastern Colored League, which would eventually compete against the NNL in the Colored World Series starting in 1924. Satchel himself truly played everywhere. He even played winter ball in Cuba. He played in California, Pittsburgh, the Dominican Republic, Chicago, New York, he played throughout the Great Depression as the Negro Leagues faced near collapse during those painful economic times. He played for my favorite of these teams, the New York Black Yankees, a name that I love because it's just so matter of fact. There's the New York Yankees, and then there was the New York Black Yankees. It was, you know, straight to the point. But it was actually against the Black Yankees that Satchel performed one of his most sensational feats. He pitched his first no-hitter of his career. He was playing for the Pittsburgh Crawfords. I don't know what a Crawford is. I don't know what the mascot is there. But on July 8th, 1932, the day after his 26th birthday, Satchel prevented the Black Yankees from registering even one hit. Quote, the last out completing the first no-hitter of Page's professional career came on a strikeout. When the umpire called it, the cheers of the crowd could reportedly be heard a half mile away. End quote. Satchel Page himself would estimate that by the time his career was done, he had pitched. This is his number. I'm not going to doubt the legend, but this is what he said. He said that he pitched 55 no-hitters. That's crazy. <laughs> that is nuts, guys. That's really off the charts. That's something else. He said that he pitched 55 no-hitters. <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and call Satchel a liar, okay? But 55s, <laughs> most pitchers don't even have one, let alone two, three, four, five. He had 55. Wow. He did pitch for a long time, guys. I mean, he really did. Maybe he counted every inning that he pitched no hits as a single no hitter. I don't know, man. I'm not going to doubt him. But that's the kind of tall tale stuff that I love about baseball. Satchel Page pitched 55 no-hitters. Could anybody do that nowadays? I bet not. I, I love it. Any town that Satchel walked into, if you could carry a bat, he would strike you out. That's just what he did. 
He would go on to be an all-star for the Negro Leagues six times, and he even won the league's World Series in 1942. That same year, Joe DiMaggio's Yankees would lose in five games to the St. Louis Cardinals over in the MLB. Back in the Negro Leagues, however, Satchel Paige's Kansas City Monarchs were taking on the Washington Homestead Grays. Satchel Paige pitched in all four games played for the championship, including five and a third innings in Game 4, a game he was actually apparently late for. This was a trend. Satchel found himself late to a lot of games and a lot of trips that he should have been on. But why was he late in 1942? Well, quote, Page said he was late because as he drove to Philadelphia from Pittsburgh, he was detained for speeding in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. After paying a fine of $20, he was allowed to go on his way, end quote. And yet, he still arrived and dominated, as he always did. These stories seemed to just follow Satchel around, whether he wanted it or not. And sometimes the show was on his terms. He loved the theatrics of it all. Satchel was, quote, prone to stunts such as sending the infield players into the dugout while he pitched, end quote. Meaning, listen, I don't need defense. I got this. This is me. I can handle this. Another story finds Satchel, quote, deliberately loading the bases before pitching to Josh Gibson, a hitter of great renown, end quote. Josh Gibson was actually called at the time the Black Babe Ruth. He, he died before he got a chance to break the color barrier, but there are some historians who suggest that Jackie Robinson got to do it in 1947, but Josh Gibson was so good that he might have been able to do it before Jackie did it himself, but he never got the chance. Satchel would essentially put himself in the most dangerous situations that a, a baseball pitcher could find himself in just to show that he could handle it on his own. It didn't scare him, and he would get out of it anyway. He was a showboat in the best way. That is what made him a star. But maybe you've done the math already. Maybe you've put this together. Satchel got his start in the Negro Leagues at the age of 20 back in 1926. Jackie Robinson would not break the color barrier until after the Second World War, 21 years later in 1947. That would mean Satchel was in his 40s by the time he even got a chance to make an appearance in the newly less segregated Major League Baseball. He was a star, the best pitcher in the game in the Negro Leagues for 20 years. But when Jackie broke the barrier and white teams finally grew up and decided to hire these remarkable baseball players that they were just ignoring because of the color of their skin, Satchel Paige's opportunity finally came. In 1948, on the day of his 42nd birthday, Satchel signed a contract with the Cleveland Indians, now the Cleveland Guardians, making him the first black pitcher in the American League. He debuted two days later, an ugly start, but the team rallied and so did Satchel. He pitched a complete game in August of that year and ended the season with a 6-1 record. The rest of the season was a success for the entire team, and by the end of 1948, Cleveland made it to their first World Series appearance in 28 years. When he took the mound in Game 5 of the World Series, Satchel became the first black pitcher in World Series history. They would win it in six games. Now... Satchel was a champion in both leagues. I tell you all these remarkable feats to help you understand why, in 1956, Satchel Paige would draw the largest crowd in minor league baseball history to the Orange Bowl in Miami. Because he had surpassed insurmountable odds time and time again, and in 1956, well, he did it again. Satchel had his ups and downs since the World Series in 1948, going back to the Negro Leagues for a year in 1950, then back to the MLB with the St. Louis Browns, but Satchel just didn't stop playing. He wasn't exactly a spring chicken anymore, but that did not slow him down. Nowadays, pitchers in their 40s are considered to be 
that's quite an old age for a pitcher to be. There are very few pitchers in their 40s in baseball nowadays. Satchel was approaching his 50s. But an interesting connection to Florida brought Satchel to yet another opportunity to show that he was the best in the game. The same man that got him to the Cleveland Indians in the first place, a man named Bill Veek. He owned the Cleveland Indians back in 1948, and he got Satchel a tryout for the Cleveland team back then. That same man got Satchel connected with the Miami Marlins, the team bringing baseball back to South Florida. It was more than just another opportunity to pitch for Satchel. It was a press move for the Marlins as a team and for the league at large. Satchel was a living legend late in his career, a 50-year-old phenom. But Satchel didn't come just to put on a show. He came to play for real. Attendance was the goal for the team, but not for the old Satchel tree. Pretty soon, he had a pitching record of 5-2 with a remarkably low 1.50 earned run average, a shockingly good average for any pitcher, let alone a 50-year-old man at the supposed end of his career making a PR run in the minor leagues. He was doing it for real. And apparently, Satchel loved the Sunshine State. Quote, Satchel was thriving in the warm weather of Miami and pitched his best ball on Sunday afternoons, capturing six of his first eight wins on Sunday, end quote. Who doesn't love a Sunday afternoon in the Florida summer sun? It was in August, after a month and a half or so of Miami Marlins baseball, that Satchel played the massive record-breaking game. The Orange Bowl game, I have seen in some sources, was a charity game played just to raise the profile of the team and raise some money, but in the main article I'm citing, it seems like it was much more important, like it actually had stake for the standings. It may have been both, I'm not sure, but the Marlins were on a losing streak and the team needed a win. The move to the Orange Bowl brought in a larger audience, of course, that venue could obviously seat loads more people, and maybe a change of scenery could liven up the lagging team. According to the Society for American Baseball Research, Sabre, who I have all of these articles are from Sabre. They have so much incredible research on this. But the venue held, quote, 57,713 fans to witness Page's fourth start of the season, end quote. Miami won 6-2 with three of those runs that were scored for the Marlins by Satchel Page himself. He wasn't just a pitching maestro. He also was pretty good with the stick. This was the days when pitchers were taking at-bats and Satchel could put some runs on the board as well as prevent them from the other side. It's, it's just, what couldn't the man do? He made 37 appearances for the team that year, the most of anyone on the Marlins. Quote, in games in which Page appeared, the Marlins were 27 and 10, end quote. The team was just better with Satchel around. They made the playoffs, though they didn't make it very far. You wouldn't be blamed right now if you expected that the 50-year-old Satchel was about to call it a career, but no. The man showed back up to Florida in 1957, ready to take the Marlins for another role. He arrived to Stewart, Florida for spring training, saying, quote, I hear Stewart is a fine place for spring training. Good fishing, I mean, end quote. By the time he made his first start, he had added a pitch to his arsenal, a pitch he called the humbug. That's just not something that 50-year-old pitchers are doing. They're not even really pitching at all. He was adding pitches? What kind of lunatic was this man? He pitched seven innings of a doubleheader in his first appearance of the year, a sign of good things to come. And though his season ended up winning for him personally, the team lost its offensive capabilities, but somehow wound up in a playoff position, falling short of another championship. Nevertheless, come spring of 1958, Guess who showed up in Miami for some baseball? That's right, Satchel Paige in his 52nd year of life yet again, ready for Miami baseball. 
1955, however, was not his year. On top of diminishing returns with his baseball performance, he got in his own way, actually. He would miss flights, he would fight with the bosses over pay, and the problems just compounded. He was reliable once you got him to the mound, it was getting him there that was the hard part. He ended 1958 with a 10-10 record, and when 1959 rolled around, Satchel did not make the trip to South Florida. The Marlins themselves called it quits the year after in 1960, moving briefly to San Juan, Puerto Rico before moving officially to West Virginia. That team would never return to Miami, and Satchel would not pitch for the Marlins again. But he did keep pitching. Of course he did. He kept up for some publicity appearances throughout the 1960s, but in his 59th year, right before he turned 60, Satchel did something insane to me. In 1965, Satchel returned to Kansas City. He won the Negro World Series back in 1942 in Kansas City for the Kansas City Monarchs. This was his town. 23 years later, the legend returned and signed a one-day contract with the MLB team, the Kansas City Athletics. The game apparently was designed to be an honoring game for the Negro League veterans, including Satchel Paige. But Satchel Paige didn't just show up to receive a round of applause. No, he put on a uniform. He returned to the city where he became a champion, and for this one appearance, his final one in the majors, yet another publicity stunt, but one that he actually got to play in, Satchel gave it everything he had, making him the oldest pitcher to play in the major leagues, a record he still holds at age 59. Satchel still did what he always did. He performed. He pitched three innings, and he did not give up a single run. Satchel Page was unstoppable. As for the Miami Marlins, that name would not stay away from the city for long. A new Miami Marlins would arrive in 1962 for the Florida State League, but those historic Miami Marlins back in 1956, they were the first Miami Marlins, the name that began it all, that would carry over to the Marlins that play in the major leagues in our state to this very day. And even though they created the now iconic team named back in 1956, that franchise should be known for something else altogether. 50,000 people screaming for one man, the great, the sensational, the ageless Satchel Page. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. Listen, sometimes I got to put out an episode of the show that's just you letting me yell at you about a person that I think is really neat. <laughs> Satchel is the perfect example of that. So thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, if you uh, have someone who has not listened to this show before and maybe they're a big baseball fan and they, they want to find a good way to get in, this is the, the perfect time to do so. Baseball is just getting started and man, I am grateful. My favorite sport is back and uh, I'll try not to bug you too much about it, but trust me, it, when I am writing episodes of this show, there is baseball on in the background. You can 
guarantee it. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or share the show on Instagram or Facebook at WFMPod, or you can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. There is no guest on this week, but I have to give a huge thank you to Sabre. They do so much incredible work. I've included some links to articles that they have written about this topic and and so much more. Man, you just got to go give them a read. They are an amazing site, so go support Sabre. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. All right, folks, that is it for me this week. And in fact, you're not going to hear from me next week either. By the time you're hearing this episode, I'm going to be traveling on my little spring break. So there will not be an episode on March 4th. There will be an episode on March 11th, and then there will be episodes all the way to the very last Monday of April on April 29th. That's right. There's going to be eight straight episodes from March 11th to the end of April. And boy, we have got some doozies on the horizon, but we will not be back on March 4th. I will see you on March 11th for a brand new episode. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and go Gator and muddy the water. Why don't you find yourself at a spring training game in the next couple of days? I bet you'll have a good time. Just pick a team near you, go watch some baseball, and enjoy America's pastime. I bet Satchel Page would be very glad to know that you were enjoying some baseball in the beautiful Florida sun that he enjoyed so much during his time in our state. Have a good week. <laughs>